Greetings to all of you to the Festival of Torino Spirituality. Grazie a voi, and it's a great honor for me to be here. I found it a wonderful idea to have such a festival in such a crazy time, where not only our daily habits are interrupted, but in a way we are getting tired after the long pandemic of desire itself. The COVID fatigue extends now, I noticed, even into theory. At the beginning of 2021, I simply got tired of writing new and new comments on the pandemic. The same situation was dragging on and on, and one gets tired of making the same point again and again. The paradox is here that although obeying repetitive and stable customs is supposed to make life tiresome, what we are now tired of is precisely the absence of such stable customs. We are tired of living in a permanent state of exception, awaiting new regulations from the state that tell us how to interact. We are unable to relax in our daily life. Among many others, Rainer Paris published in late 2020 a short essay, Die Zerstörung des Alltags describing the destruction of everyday life. The pandemic poses a threat to routines which hold a society together. What does this mean? One of the best Goldwinisms, eccentric statements attributed to the legendary Hollywood producer Sam Goldwyn, tells how, after he, Goldwyn, was informed that critics complained how there are too many old cliches in his films. He, Goldwyn, wrote a memo to his scenario department saying we need more new cliches. He was right. This is our very difficult task today, to create new cliches for our ordinary lives. There are, of course, great cultural differences in how this fatigue operates. Byung-Chul Han is right when he points out that COVID fatigue is much greater in Western developed societies because subjects live here more than elsewhere under the pressure of what uh, Byung-Chul Han calls the compulsion to achieve. A quote from Han. Social media turn all of us into producers, entrepreneurs whose selves are the business. It globalizes the ego culture that erodes community, erodes anything social. We produce ourselves and put ourselves on permanent display. This self-production, this ongoing being on display of the ego makes us tired and depressed. Fundamental tiredness is ultimately a kind of ego tiredness. The home office identifies it, sorry, the home office intensifies it by entangling us even deeper into ourselves. Other people who could distract us from our ego are missing. An absence of ritual is another reason for the tiredness induced by the home office. In the name of flexibility, we are losing the fixed temporal structures and architectures that stabilize and invigorate life. End of quote. Now, one would have thought that if depressive tiredness is caused by the way we are all the time self-exposing in late capitalism, then the pandemic lockdown should make things easier 
since we are much more time socially isolated, we experience less pressure to perform for others. Unfortunately, the effect is almost the opposite one. Our business and social contacts are to a large extent transferred onto the Zoom, as we are doing it now, Zoom and other social media, where we play the game of self-exposing even more intensely, attentive of how we will appear there. While the space for socializing, where we can relax and uh, escape the pressure to exhibit, is largely eliminated. The paradox is thus that with the pandemic, the continuous being on display is even strengthened by lockdown and homework. One tries to shine with energy on Zoom, but one sits tired and alone at home. My friend Mladen Dolar designated our situation with the term borrowed from Walter Benjamin, dialectic im Stillstand. Dialectic at standstill, but also in suspense, awaiting anxiously that things will begin to move, that the new will explode. However, the feeling of standstill, the numbness, growing unresponsiveness, which lead more and more people to ignore news and to stop even caring about the future is very deceptive. It masks the fact that we are within an unprecedented social change. Since the rise of the pandemic, the global capitalist order has changed immensely. The big break that we are anxiously awaiting is already happening. How does this strange mixture of fatigue and uncontrollable change affect our capacity to desire? Well, let's begin with some basics. We ultimately experience enjoyment, jouissance, as mediated by some figure of the big other. It is the other's enjoyment, inaccessible to us, like women's enjoyment for men, another ethnic group's enjoyment for our group, and so on. Or it is our rightful enjoyment, stolen from us by an other or threatened by an other. This dimension of the theft of enjoyment played, for example, a crucial role when, we all know the scene, when Donald Trump's supporters stormed the Capitol on January 6, 2021. What happened was not an attempt of a coup d'etat, but a carnival. The idea that carnivals can serve as the model for progressive protest movements, the idea that such protests are carnivalesque, not only in their form and atmosphere, theatrical performances, humorous chants, and so on, but also in their non-centralized organization, this idea, I think, is deeply problematic. Let's take a brief look into history. Was the infamous Kristallnacht in 1938 half organized, half spontaneous outburst of violent attacks on Jewish homes, synagogues, businesses, and the people themselves in Germany? Was it not a carnival? Furthermore, is carnival not also the name for the obscene underside of power? from gang rapes to mass lynchings. Let us not forget that Mikhail Bakhtin developed the notion of carnival 
in his book on Rabelais, which is written in 1930s, as a direct reaction to the carnival of the Stalinist purges. Traditionally, in resisting those in power, one of the strategies of the lower classes has always been to use terrifying display of brutality to disturb the middle class sense of decency. But again, with the events on capital, Carnival lost its innocence. Most of the capital protesters we know now flew from their affluent suburbs to Washington, ready to die for the cause of their white privilege. This is true, but many of them were also part of a lower middle class which sees their privileges threatened by the imagined coalition of big business, new digital media corporation banks, state administration controlling our daily lives, imposing lockdowns, masks, and so on, natural catastrophes, pandemic, forest fires, and others, the poor, other races, LGBT, and so on, who are allegedly exhausting the state's financial resources, compelling the state to raise taxes. Central is here the category of our way of life. Socializing in bars and cafeterias or in large sport events, free car movement, the right to possess guns, rejection of everything that poses a threat to these freedoms, like masks and lockdowns, and rejection of state control. Everything that poses a threat to this way of life is denounced as a plot. This way of life is clearly not class neutral. It is the way of life of the white middle class who perceive themselves as the true embodiment of what America is about. So when we hear that the agent of this conspiracy did not just steal elections, but is taking from us, gradually eroding our way of life, we should apply here another uh, category, that of the theft of enjoyment. Jacques Lacan predicted way back in the early 1970s that capitalist globalization will rise to a new mode of racism focused on the figure of an other who either threatens to snatch from us our enjoyment, the deep satisfaction provided by our way of life, or itself possess and display an excessive enjoyment that eludes our grasp, like anti-Semitic fantasies about secret Jewish rituals, white fantasies about superior sexual prowess of the black man, the perception in the United States of Mexicans as rapists and drug dealers and so on. Enjoyment is not to be confused here with sexual or other direct pleasures. It is a deeper satisfaction in our specific way of life or in paranoia about the other's way of life. What disturbs us in the other is usually even embodied in small details of daily life. Like the usual liberal tells us today something like, I don't have anything against Jews, Arabs, uh, Africans, and so on. I just don't like their, the smell of their food or their music is too loud for me and so on and so on. Something disturbs you. Their laughter is too loud and so on. So, uh, this enjoyment, which is not direct enjoyment, but enjoyment in a certain way of life, is, I claim, close to what Jacques Lacan called surplus enjoyment. Surplus enjoyment as something that adds itself to, let's call it, the zero-level enjoyment. Now, we should bear in mind that it was 
Marx's notion of surplus value, Merwer, which enabled Lacan to deploy his notion of surplus enjoyment, plus de jouir, mer lust. The predominant motive which permits all Lacan's references to Marx's analysis of commodities is the structural homology between surplus value and surplus enjoyment. Freud called this surplus lust gewin, a gain of pleasure, which does not designate a simple stepping up of pleasure, but the additional pleasure provided by the very formal detours, obstacles, in our effort to attain uh, pleasure. A crazy example that of this surplus enjoyment that a friend of mine told me from United States is what he saw in a big Walmart store. When he exited the store, he found there uh, 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 many shopping carts full of items thrown into them, but uh, the uh, uh, shopping carts were simply abandoned there. He asked what is going on, and uh, he was told that because of the economic crisis, many people cannot afford to buy a lot as they were used to. You know, you go to a big store, you have a cart, you just throw things in. So they don't buy anything. They just go in there, throw things in. The pleasure is simply this procedure of playing the game as if you are buying things, and then they leave the store. They buy nothing. They get, they get a, a, a pure surplus. Just the surplus without the basic uh, gain. Another example of lose the begin would be the standard experience of psychopathology. A certain prohibition forces you to renounce a pleasure. But then in a typically perverted way, you start to enjoy rituals of renunciation themselves. Repression of desire reverts into desire of repression. For example, you know that you will be punished for some prohibited acts, a traditional example, by being beaten or whipped, and then you start to enjoy this very procedure of whipping, beating yourself, and so on. You know, so the lesson here is that you cannot escape these obscene pleasures. Even if you renounce pleasure, a surplus emerges, uh, uh, you start to enjoy rituals of self-humiliation, of renunciation itself. This is how capitalist consumerism works. It may appear that capitalist consumerism is inherently hysteric because the game of consumerism is you buy this, you expect that this will be the real thing, what, what brings you full satisfaction, but you are always disappointed. This is not it, so okay, let's buy another object. It's again not it, not what you were really looking for, and then the game goes on endlessly. But I don't think it functions like that. I think that uh, today's consumerism is a form of perversion, which means that you know in advance that what you will buy a certain type of shoes, of hat, or whatever, will not satisfy you. You know that this is not it. But nonetheless, you go through the process, on and on and on. It's a cynical stance. You don't expect anything, but nonetheless, the form as such of going on, buying things, satisfies you. Now, this brings us to capitalism. Why does capitalism today exert such ideological fascination? Why 
does it appear capitalism to many people as the social order that best fits human nature. Even many leftists privately admit that capitalism is the only thing that really works, and they resign themselves to a more welfare and human rights-oriented capitalism, abandoning socialism as an impossible, unworkable utopia. Here I would like to refer to the work of my friend Todd McGowan, who provided a Lacanian explanation of the resiliency of capitalism. McGowan boldly admits that in some, of course, very qualified sense, capitalism effectively fits human nature. Namely, in contrast to pre-modern social orders, which obfuscate the paradox of human desire, which presume that desire is structured in a straightforward teleological way, we humans strive towards some ultimate goal, but it happens, sorry, but if, but uh, happiness, uh, we, uh, ultimate goal, sorry, be it happiness or another kind of material or spiritual fulfillment, and we want to find peace and satisfaction in achieving this goal. But capitalism is the first and only social order that incorporates into its functioning the basic paradox of human desire. This paradox concerns the functioning of surplus in our libidinal economy. Whatever we achieve is never that. We always want something else, something more. And the ultimate aim of our desire is not to achieve some ultimate goal, but to reproduce its own endless self-reproduction in an ever-expanded form. This is why the imbalance of the system defines capitalism. Capitalism can only thrive through its own constant self-undermining and revolutionizing. The paradox is that because we desire the surplus that eludes every object, our very orientation towards pleasure and satisfaction compels us permanently to sacrifice available satisfaction on behalf of some satisfaction to come. In capitalism, hedonism and asceticism coincide. Or, to quote the concise recapitulation of this paradox by Todd McGovern, a brief quote, Capitalism hides sacrifice and thus enables us to find our satisfaction in it without ever avowing, admitting, the link between sacrifice and satisfaction. All satisfaction depends on some form of sacrifice, of time, uh, of resources, of utility, and so on. But capitalism disguises Sacrifice as self-interest, which enables capitalist subjects to engage in satisfying sacrifice while believing that they are just pursuing their self-interest. It's clear the idea of this paradox. Again, to recapitulate, according to Jacques Lacan, our desire is not really to achieve the goal, but to reproduce itself as a desire. I want that but I never get it, and I don't want ever to get it. I just want to again and again search for it. And this is how capitalism works. Yes, it is oriented towards consumerist satisfaction and so on, but you never want to be there. You always say, okay, I will rather invest this uh, uh, and uh, uh, sacrifice my uh, recent pleasures for some future satisfaction, which, of course, never comes. So capitalism is a paradox of hedonism which pushes us to sacrifice uh, all the time. Now, there is another aspect in how capitalism and sexuality are linked. You know, Roland Barthes said years ago, language as such is maybe a fascist phenomenon. I'm tempted to say that 
capitalism as such is in some sense a sexual phenomenon, uh, incorporating the basic paradox of human uh, sexuality. Uh, 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 the uh, uh, that is to say, uh, uh, capitalism and sexuality imply a homologous structure. We enjoy the fetishized image of a commodity, not the thing itself that is this commodity. We often criticize capitalism as fetishized. You don't get the real object, you are just satisfied by images and so on and so on. And we claim this is how sexuality works under capitalist conditions. But I think that this gap between the stupid reality of the thing and its image is already inscribed into sexuality itself. This is the lesson of Freud. Let me explain this. About a little bit over a year ago, uh, Eva Weissman wrote a comment, comment for The Guardian magazine where she refers to a moment in The Butterfly Effect, John Ronson's podcast series about internet porn. She refers to a scene where on the set of a porn film, an actor in the middle of doing it, penetrating a lady, loses his erection. Now to get the erection back, he turns away from the woman whom he was penetrating, uh, who was lying naked beneath him. She grabs his phone and searches Pornhub, Pornhub, some hardcore pornography. Uh, and uh, for Eva Weissman, this is almost apocalyptic. She comments to it, something is rotten in the state of sex. What shocks her is that while you are there with the real woman doing it with her, you lose erection. So you need to escape to your iPhone, to digital space, to visual pornography in order to get excited again to do it in reality. Uh, uh, but for psychoanalysis, this is not just unnatural, wrong sexuality. Something is rotten in the state of sex as such. Human sexuality is in itself perverted, exposed to sadomasochist reversals and specifically to the mixture of reality and fantasy. Even when I am alone with my partner, my sexual interaction with him or her is inextricably intertwined with my fantasies. Every sexual interaction is potentially structured like masturbation with a real partner. I use the flesh and body of my partner as a prop to realize or enact my fantasies. So we cannot reduce the gap between the bodily reality of me and my partner and the universe of fantasies to a distortion open up by patriarchy or social domination and exploitation. The gap is here from the very beginning. So I must say I quite understand the actor who, in order to regain erection, searched Pornhub. He was looking for a phantasmatic support of his performance. It is for the same reason that, as part of the sexual intercourse, one partner sometimes asks the other to go on talking, usually narrating something dirty. Even when you hold in your hands the thing itself, the beloved partner's naked body, this presence has to be supplemented by verbal fantasizing. So back to Eva Weissman. She concludes her comment by saying, 
by attempting to understand the shadowed new landscape of Poland, we may come closer to a healthy relationship with our own sexuality. But I think this is a wrong conclusion because sexuality is in itself not quite healthy. The shadowy aspect of pornography, these aspects do not just disturb from outside some kind of healthy sexuality, but sexuality itself is rendered possible by all the unhealthy uh, uh, fantasies, excesses, and so on, uh, uh, and so on, uh, and so on. So, uh, back to my main line, pleasure, sacrifice, capitalism. Capitalism obfuscates the paradox of desire by permanently dangling before us, producers, before our producers' and consumers' eyes, the promise of some future satisfaction. In short, instead of admitting that the promise of future satisfaction is just an illusory ploy to justify the present sacrifice and renunciation, capitalism turns things around and presents sacrifices and renunciations as means to achieve future satisfaction. Once this devilish logic of surplus is directly mobilized, there is no return to pre-capitalist balance. I don't think there is any chance that we say we get rid of all these digital supplements, we want directly the real thing. No, we cannot step out of it. All we can do is to fully accept, admit, sacrifice as such, to find directly pleasure in sacrifice without masking it as a promise of some future satisfaction. This is why I also claim global capitalism cannot really contain or integrate the COVID crisis. As we have seen, capitalism is in its core sacrificial. Instead of immediately consuming the profit, we should reinvest it. Full satisfaction is forever postponed. In the finale of Mozart's Don Giovanni, Don Giovanni triumphantly sings, Già che spendo i miei denari, io mi voglio divertir. Since I spent my money freely, I want to be amused. It is difficult to imagine a more anti-capitalist motto. A capitalist doesn't spend his money to be amused, but to get more money. However, this sacrifice is not experienced as such. It is concealed. With the COVID epidemics, however, the sacrificial truth of capitalism comes out. How? We are openly solicited to sacrifice some of our lives, even now, to keep the economy going. I am referring here to how some of Donald Trump's followers in a reaction to pandemic directly demanded that people over 60 should accept to die to keep the U.S. capitalist way of life going. Of course, workers in dangerous professions were risking their lives for centuries. And of course, not to mention the horrors of colonization and so on and so on. But the risk is now directly spelled out, not only for the poor, the poor, and we simply are not able to assume this, to openly assume this uh, paradox of sacrifice, this weird coincidence of Shadonism in capitalism, you take care about your self-interest and radical ascetism, sacrificing yourself, your present happiness. Another aspect of the same paradox. Robert Faller elaborated a wonderful notion of impersonal beliefs, beliefs which function as a social fact and 
which determine how we act determine how we act although we don't be really believe the usual excuse of individuals is something like i know it's probably not true but i follow the rules because they are a constituent part of my community uh, uh, so the status of these impersonal beliefs nobody believes in them but they structure our reality is that of the big other i don't believe in it but some other anonymous other believes in it an extremely stupid simple example uh, how do you call it uh, 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 babbo natale uh, presents for christmas and so on and so on we parents buy the presents we know that we bought them children know that we just pretend that it's babbo natale so everybody knows that it's a play nobody believes in uh, 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 in uh, babbo natale but nonetheless we this belief functions socially we act as if we believe in it now the idea of faller is that <coughs> sorry in parallel with impersonal beliefs there is also something we should call impersonal enjoyment enjoyment which cannot be attributed to which cannot be attributed directly to uh, other subject it's as it were the system itself which enjoys and this is how the standard capitalist functions he doesn't enjoy a good capitalist works day and night but it is as if he is fascinated by this circular movement in which capital itself enjoys its uh, enjoys its multiply its uh, multiplication already this brief overview makes it clear that desire and enjoyment are not simple basic natural propensities they involve intricate paradoxes we all probably know at least the title of freud's essay the ego and the id but you know the true novelty of this essay it's not simply ego and the id but it's the third term superego now what is superego superego is not a higher moral agency if one reads freud closely we see that as lacan pointed out that superego iberich superego is at its most basic the injunction to enjoy to enjoy is not a matter of following one's spontaneous tendencies it's rather that this excessive enjoyment participate in orgies do it and so on it's usually even painful at the direct level you obey a strangely twisted perverted notion of ethical commandment of ethical duty in this sense uh, uh, lacan uh, was more precise than freud he elaborated a distinction between three terms which freud treats as uh, as equal ideal ego ego ideal and superego ego ideal uh, sorry ideal ego is simply the idealized image of myself how i would like to appear but ideal ego but ego ideal is the agency whose gaze i try to impress with my ego image when i try to appear beautiful attractive it's always for some presupposed gaze that i am acting uh the superego is something different is revengeful sadistic punishing agency uh, it's a cruel insatiable agency which bombards me with impossible demands and mocks my failed attempts to meet these demands the agency in the eyes of which i am all the more guilty 
the more I try to suppress my strivings and meet superego demands. That's as Freud saw it clearly, the paradox of superego. The more you obey its commands, the more you are uh, guilty. Uh, and today, I think we are more and more in the domain of superego. Uh, ego ideal, social normativity embodied in a big other, are disintegrated. We are more and more, I simplify the image, of course, called in a narcissistic struggle of ideal egos, which are pushed by some insatiable superego demand to uh, enjoy. Even patriarchal authority, fathers today, uh, behave more and more as ideal egos. They no longer dare to assume the authority of a father. Uh, the paradox is that such a situation with the declining paternal authority is, uh, does not bring more open personal freedom. No, it poses a serious obstacle to the emancipatory, uh, to the emancipatory process. How? Let me explain this a little bit. If the symbolic law, name of the father, is losing its authority, that is to say, if there is no prohibition, then desire itself, sustained by the prospect to transgress it, vanishes. This is why permissiveness kills desire. Along these lines, Pierre Legendre and some other Lacanians, I don't agree with them, but nonetheless, it's an interesting idea, claim that the problem today is the decline of the paternal authority. In its absence, pathological narcissism explodes, evoking the specter of this primordial father, the pure superego authority, which enjoins us to, commands us to enjoy. Uh, uh, now, uh, Although this idea is to be rejected, it correctly points out how the decline of the master figure, symbolic authority, again, in no way automatically guarantees emancipation. It can well engender much more oppressive figures of domination. Uh, so what is the solution here? Jacqueline Miller's solution, very sad one, is cynicism. We know every symbolic authority is a fake. We know authority is in itself impotent, but if we openly admit this, uh, our desire is sabotaged, is blocked. So we should, although we know that we don't, that there is no true, authentic, symbolic authority, that every authority is a semblance, a fake, we should act as if we believe in it. Only in this way we can, uh, only in this way we can somehow retain, uh, uh, keep our desire alive. I think that this cynical solution is a little bit too simple. Why? First, let's look at it from the standpoint of the father. Uh, every authority has to rely on what Jacques Lacan called symbolic castration. Not I. The bearer of authority itself is castrated. Let's say if I am a king, I have to accept that the ritual of investiture makes me a king. My authority is embodied in the insignia that I wear. So my authority is in some sense external to me. It, as Lacan put it, only a psychotic is a king who thinks that he is really a king in itself. That's why <coughs> being a father is by definition a failure. 
No empirical father can live up to his symbolic function, to his title. I'm always a failure as a father. How should we come to terms with this paradox? Again, Miller's solution is cynical distance. I am aware that I'm always a failure as a symbolic authority, but I should act as if with a cynical distance, as if I believe that I have the uh, authority. There are three possibilities to deal with this failure of authority. One is one is uh, to uh, accept the impossibility of acting with authority. To say, okay, I renounce my authority, I don't care, I know I'm impotent, and so on and so on. Uh, uh, the other possibility is to make oneself a neutral expert. Okay, I have no authority, but I simply report what I know, and the authority is in the expert knowledge. But we cannot so easily escape the figure of a master. So, in these conditions of expert rule, like today mostly authority, apropos COVID, is not that of a master. It's medicals, doctors who tell us, science uh, tells us that this is what we have to do, and so on, and so on. Uh, but this doesn't work, so uh, the master figure returns not as a figure of dignity, but, but as a ridiculous, obscene master. Symbolic authority declines. The obscene master, almost I would say the real of a master, pure superego energy, uh, sorry, uh, pure superego entity returns. Wasn't Donald Trump this? An absolute obscene master, over-present. But uh, we cannot, again, this is obviously an almost psychotic solution, we cannot deal with things in such a simple way. What's the problem? Hannah Arendt uh, saw this problem very clearly. A quote from Hannah Arendt. Modern man could find no clearer expression for his dissatisfaction with the world, for his disgust with things as they are, then by his refusal to assume in respect to his children responsibility for all this. It is as though parents are daily saying, in this world, even we are not very securely at home. How to move about it, what to know, what skills to master are mysterious to us too. You must try to make out we should say our children the best you can. In any case, you are not entitled to call us to account. We are innocent, we wash our hands of you. This solution, of course, <coughs> as Hannah Arendt knows very well, is false. Like, we cannot say children expect from us authority. We cannot tell to our, say to our children, Listen, I have no authority, I am also lost in this world, so find your way. I don't want to assume authority. Uh, nonetheless, the paradox is that, but not in Miller's cynical way, we should act as if we know, but not in a cynical way. Although we know very well that we, that we don't have any justification to really act as if we know. We should sincerely be ready to risk our lives. This is the ethical act. To risk our lives, assuming an authority for which we don't have, well, real authority to assume it. And I would like to take here an example from one of the most beautiful that I know Italian films. Please look at it. Take a look. You can get it for free on the pirate base if you don't know it. Roberto Rossellini's from late 50s, early 60s, 1900, I think, uh, 
General Della Rovere. It's a movie about an ordinary small crook played by Vittorio De Sica, who uh, is in uh, 44, I think, I think, uh, uh, in northern Italy, I think in Genoa, I'm not sure, arrested by Germans, and they tell him, you look like General Della Rovere, a big hero of resistance to us fascists. So we want to put you to prison because other prisoners will think that you are really Della Rovere. So they will confide in you, they will tell you what, but the real General Della Rovere is that. Various uh, prisoners don't know this. That they will, they will accept you as if, because you look like him, that you are Della Rovere and they will tell you all the secret details and so on and so on. So, Vittorio De Sica character does this, assumes an authority which is definitely not his. It's a fake. But then, in a beautiful ethical gesture, not only he doesn't tell the Germans what he learned from other prisoners, but he identifies fully with his role of General Della Rovere, and at the end, when Germans tell him, okay, enough of the game, you will die, we will shoot you. Yes. If you really want to act as General Della Rovere, then we will sentence you to death, you will shoot. He graciously accepts this. He dies as General Della, he dies as General Della uh, Rovere. That's, that's the paradox that we have to uh, accept. Then, uh, again, to uh, conclude uh, slowly, uh, uh, so this is one way how authority can function authentically, but in a not cynical way. That we fully assume with full responsibility, being ready to go to death, that we assume authority for which we are not authorized. Next paradox, which complicates things here. There are prohibitions. We are not only permitted to violate, but we are obliged to violate, so that the true transgression is to stick strictly to the rule of uh, prohibition. For example, in every community, departments at university, workplaces, and so on, certain things are prohibited, but you are silently expected to violate these prohibitions, just in a certain way. For example, I remember this was my big epiphany, ideological, on how ideology works. In the army, things were prohibited, but even officers directly solicited us to act in prohibited ways. There were dirty sexualized rituals and so on and so on. And uh, uh, you were simply considered stupid if you did not violate the explicit rules in certain way. Then an even more complex example uh, that prohibitions can themselves be prohibited. Certain things are officially allowed, but in reality, you shouldn't do them. It can be dangerous, like extreme example. In Stalinist Soviet Union, it was prohibited, of course, to criticize Stalin. But it was even more prohibited to announce this publicly. You were immediately arrested if you said, in our country, we are not allowed to criticize Comrade Stalin, and so on, and so on. Then, this brings us to the ultimate paradox, which I already mentioned, that uh, we don't only uh, enjoy when we violate uh, prohibition. We can enjoy oppression itself. Uh, 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 for example, Darian Leader showed how uh, uh, obeying the rules imposed by authorities in the pandemic, wash your hands and so on. It's not only that 
many of us find pleasure in violating these rules. There are also people, sorry to tell you, I am among them, who enjoy, I'm obsessional and neurotic, who enjoy obeying these rules, like I excessively wash my hands, it's irrational from the standpoint of pandemic. No, I enjoy uh, 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 oppression itself. Uh, uh, next thing we should do here is to get clearly the opposition between oppression, Repression, there are even three terms. Okay, first, it's oppression, repression. They are not the same. Oppression is external. Repression is the imminent self-blocking of desire. And then we have depression. What is depression? Depression is not prohibition. Depression is the loss of the loss. We lose desire, ability to desire itself. And this is, I think, what we are more and more experiencing today in our, uh, our so-called permissive times. Uh, we are no longer dealing with old repression or more radically oppression. We are dealing with permissiveness, but then we get new regulations justified by, by this uh, permissive, permissivity itself. People say, yes, of course, the goal of our life is to enjoy healthy sex and so on. But to guarantee this enjoyment, you get caught in, usually politically correct and so on, numerous new uh, regulations. Regulations, not direct prohibitions, like... But to have a free sex, no domination, no power exercise, no humiliation, no aggressivity, and so on and so on. And of course, this is the big paradox today. We want, we think we live in a permissible society, but this society is over-regulated through politically correct rules. You never know when you will make a mistake and so on and so on. What's the problem here? The problem is to admit the basic fact that, again, these power distortions, domination, brutality, masochism, self-objectivization is not something external to sexuality. Sexuality, if there is a lesson of Freud, it is that sexuality is in itself pathological, unhealthy, if you want, and so on and so on. So that if you want pure, equal uh, uh, sexuality, sexuality which uh, is based on mutual agreement, you know, both have in some countries, it's already the law, like in some parts of Australia, that to have sex, you have both parties have to sign an agreement that they both freely concede to sexual act and so on and so on. The problem, uh, the problem is that this, in this way, we get a dream of pure sex without the surplus. What if I find satisfaction in the very element of violence? I'm not, incidentally, I'm not uh, justifying rape here, quite on the contrary. But I think uh, 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 things are more complex here because one thing is rape, another thing is an element of violence which can in itself bring enjoyment. And the problem is that, as they say, the old classical proverb, when you are throwing out of a bathtub a glass, uh, sorry, uh, uh, the dirty water, you should be aware not to throw out also the baby, which was taking a bath, washing in it. Uh, uh, this, I claim, is uh, impossible to do. That's why the ultimate lesson of capitalism, actual, especially today, in this new form of consumerism called political correctness, healthy sex, and so on and so on, is just two conclusive statements. First, no, you cannot throw out the dirty water and keep the baby, 
the goal of psychoanalysis should be exactly the opposite one. You throw out the healthy baby, any dream of a just, democratic, equal, sex, and so on, and you learn to enjoy only the dirty water. Sex is not the clean baby. Sex is the dirty water which remains after you throw out, after you get rid of the baby. Second, uh, this is the first thing, uh, the big lesson. Second thing, this is why the goal of psychoanalysis is not, and generally what we should today, is not to strive for some uh, pure sexuality, but to accept, to ac not to liberate desire, but to accept and just to displace the impossibility paradox of human desire. 